it uh, almost goes without saying that the God that we serve doesn't show favoritism or partiality. But apparently it shouldn't go without being said because the Bible says it repeatedly. At least seven times that I count, the Bible says that very thing. God shows no partiality. Let me show you two texts as we begin our time this morning thinking about God and how He works with us. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17 says, For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Let me turn your attention to a second passage in the book of Job. This is one of Job's friends speaking to Job. It's Elihu, and I think in this particular occasion, he speaks the truth to Job. He says in Job 34, 17 to 19, Will you condemn God, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor? For they are all the work of His hands. And I bring that text to your attention in particular because our passage this morning in James chapter 2 has to do with a church congregation potentially showing partiality or favoritism to a rich person and treating a poor person with disdain. And Job specifically says that God does not show partiality to the rich more than the poor. The phrase that's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament is literally a physical expression. It means to lift up the face. Think about it like this. Imagine that God is looking out over all people, and all people before God are down on the ground on their faces before Him. And the image is that as God walks across and looks at all the people, if God were to be partial, He would come to a person, lift their face up, and do an inspection. And if He likes what He sees, then you get to stand up before God. If he doesn't like what he sees, then you don't get to stand up before him. And the Bible says emphatically that God does not do that. He does not walk across and look at humanity, look at our faces, examine our external persons, and then make a judgment based on what is on the outside. That would be favoritism. That would be showing partiality. And God doesn't do that. He doesn't favor based on one's appearance. He doesn't judge based on externals. But I'd like to raise a question. Does God show favoritism based on internal reasons? It might be obvious to us that He doesn't look at our outward person and say, well, based on your looks, based on your dress, based on your wealth, based on your resources, based on your status, then He favors you. But does he favor people based on what's, the, what's on the inside of a person's heart? God can see the heart, after all, and I'd like to present a test case, King David. Perhaps you remember the story, but I'd like to point to one part of that story in 1 Samuel 16 as we begin thinking about this. This is when Samuel is at Jesse's house, and he's inspecting all of the sons, and he's just looked at the first son, the eldest son of Jesse, and he said basically, surely this is the Lord's anointed, because he's strapping, and he's older, and he's more mature, and he has the bearing of a king, perhaps, like Saul before him. And so Samuel is persuaded or drawn by that, but God says that he has not chosen this one. And then he says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, 
For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. And so that raises the question, does God then choose? Does God then favor? Does He bless based on not what He sees on the outside, but what He sees on the inside? I'd like for that question to just hang for a little while, and we'll come back to it at the end of our time. As we come into James chapter 2, the picture is of a church body and what we do as a church body. And if God doesn't show partiality, then His people should not show partiality. That's essentially the point here. We've been looking at James chapter 1 up to this point, and we've talked about how interconnected all of the themes are. I'd like to suggest to you that just because there's a big chapter break there doesn't mean that we're moving on to something incredibly different. I'd remind you of what concluded chapter 1 as James was talking about religion. James says in James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I'd like to suggest to you that as he moves into this picture that he gives at the beginning of chapter 2, he's basically giving an illustration of one of the ways that we can become stained by the world. That is to say, the world judges by external appearance. The world shows favoritism toward rich people instead of poor people. And if the church does that, then what it's showing is that they are being influenced and driven by the culture rather than by their relationship to God. Or, to view the connection a little bit differently, we can imagine that believers in James's audience might be tempted to show favoritism to rich people in order to sway them to use their resources to help alleviate some trial. And so I think that's why James brings up this particular issue, not to mention that it was probably quite a normal reality that his churches were going to be facing. As they were scattered abroad throughout the Roman Empire, they had to deal with people coming inside their church gatherings, inside their congregation that they didn't know. It's a very relevant issue for us. Let's look at James 2. Let's begin just looking at verse 1 and get the command on the table for us this morning. James writes... My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So there's your command for the day. Don't show partiality or favoritism is what the NIV says. And I'd like to use that term uh, synonymously with partiality here. Show no favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So essentially he's saying believing in Jesus and showing favoritism are incompatible. They do not fit together. If you believe in Jesus, showing favoritism towards someone is off limits. It is not appropriate. If you are a believer in Jesus, favoritism goes out the window. You can't do them both, in fact. If you are believing in Jesus, you should show no partiality or favoritism. Now, He refers to Jesus here in a big string of titles that's important for us to consider for just a moment because this is the only time in the book that Jesus is mentioned specifically by name except for the very first verse of the letter in the greeting. So let's consider it for just a moment. He says, you are believing in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Don't forget that Christ, when you read it in your Bibles, is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. For him, that means anointed one. 
and it usually carries royal connotations. He is the royal, kingly Messiah. And then the word glory is kind of tacked on the end. He is glorious in some way. And connecting him to glory this way is to say that this man, Jesus, that we serve, is wrapped up in the very embodiment of the glory of God. You want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus. That's where the glory of God is on display for us in Jesus. And so it is that that this is who we believe in. We believe in a Messiah who became poor who abandoned his royal garb and became poor for us. And so it's fitting that we would think we ought not show partiality because Jesus doesn't show partiality. We've already seen that God does not show favoritism or partiality throughout the Bible. There is one text that specifically speaks of Jesus and says that he doesn't do it either. Luke chapter 20, verse 21 Now, the context here, this is a scribe approaching Jesus, and we get the sense as we read the story that this scribe is being a little bit flattering. He probably doesn't believe the words coming out of his mouth. But as the gospel writer, Luke, records this for us, he speaks the truth, ironically, even though he doesn't believe it. He says, so they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. And so, by applying that to Jesus, they're essentially connecting him to God. They're saying, you're like God. And of course, the truth is even more than that. He is, in fact, divine. And so, if Jesus doesn't show partiality, if God doesn't show partiality, then far be it from us, his people, to show favoritism or partiality. Now, James goes on to point to an illustration of just how this might look. And it's an illustration. It's a hypothetical situation. So there might be a little bit of exaggeration or hyperbole in how he describes the scenario. Look at what he says in verses 2 through 4. We're introduced to two visitors who come to church one day. James 2, 2 to 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the picture is a gathering like this. And two visitors come in. Let's envision them for the sake of simplicity coming in on the same day. One of them comes in and notice that he doesn't call, James doesn't call this man a rich man. He simply describes what he's wearing because that is what the people are going to look at. That's what the church is going to see. When he walks in, he's wearing gold rings all over his fingers. He's wearing the finest robes and clothing. He's probably drawing attention to himself by what he wears. But they treat him the way that they treat him. They say, sit here in a good place, or this seat is reserved just for you. This is where you ought to sit. It's a special place reserved just for you. But they make that judgment. They treat him that way based solely on what they see with their eyes, based solely on how he is dressed. 
They make a judgment based on his clothing and his jewelry. They draw the conclusion that he must be wealthy because of what he's wearing. So James doesn't even say it. Perhaps they'd be tempted to treat a wealthy visitor this way because they'd hope that he might open his wallet and be generous to help them in their poverty. But to make sure that the point gets on the table just as it needs to, he labels the other visitor a poor man, lest there be any confusion in the minds of his readers. The man is in shabby clothing. He's a poor man, and he's in dirty, filthy clothing. He probably smells bad. He's a beggar, perhaps. And notice the way that some in the congregation, the greeters, perhaps, at the door, or maybe even the elders of the church, someone in leadership, takes responsibility to come and seat the fellow. And they say to this shabbily dressed fellow, you stand over there in the corner where nobody can see you, where you won't get in the way, where nobody has to sit next to you. Or, perhaps, why don't you sit down at my feet? Now, it's hard to imagine that any of us would perhaps say that to someone. And perhaps there might have been people in the first century who would have said such a thing. I don't know. But the point is very clear that they're treating the two different visitors differently because of how they look, because of what they're wearing, because of how they're dressed. No other details are given. We don't know anything else about these visitors. We don't know whether they're believers or non-believers. We don't know whether the people already know these visitors or not. They just come in and they're visiting the gathering. So the challenge comes home to us that we need to imagine what this could look like for us. Imagine that your favorite celebrity, your favorite football player, your favorite politician walks through those doors. Just imagine... What would your natural reaction be? Would you run after them and say, can you sign an autograph? Would you say, oh, would you come sit by me? Would you say, I want to make sure you get the best seat in the house so that you can get coffee and get everything that you need. You can see everything. You can hear everything. Would you take care of that person in a special way just because he's famous or he's got some kind of special status to you. Now put yourself in the other position as well. What would you do if a homeless person walked in on a Sunday morning? What would your instincts be? Would you look at them and keep your distance? Would you walk up to them and invite them to sit next to you? Would you say to them, I can't imagine that anyone of us would, hey, why don't you come sit down at my feet? But that's the picture that James James paints for us. It's very stark. But the point is clear that the judgment being made is simply based on external realities, on what they can see, on the way that these people are dressed. But I'd like to suggest to you that the point goes much more broadly than that. The point is, do we look at people and make a judgment And then do we treat them a certain way based on completely external things? The point could come home to us in a very powerful way when we think about the idea of a clique. A clique is not simply you spending time with people that you like. That's not a clique. But a clique is doing that and then becoming exclusive so that nobody else is allowed to come into your circle, into your group. That's what a clique is. 
But a clique is doing that to the exclusion of other people so that nobody else is allowed, nobody else is welcomed, nobody else is invited in. And the way that this applies to that is very often the reason that we spend time with the people that we spend time with is because of things that we have in common on the outside. We like to talk about football, or we are in the same stage of life. We have young children, or we go to the same places, or we spend time doing the same kinds of things. We have similar hobbies. The call here is for us to spend time with people that are different than us, obviously different than us, and not to be drawn to one person rather than another. We're not to say, you know, when I go to church, I want to make sure that I sit next to that person. I want to make sure that I talk and spend time with this person. But rather, to come and be willing and eager to talk to anybody. Not just certain people that you like. Jesus didn't spend time with people that were like Him. If you think about it, there weren't any people like Him. He spent time with people that were different from him. And the call here is for us to think in those kinds of categories and not to be thinking simply in externals. I like the way that person dresses. Or I know that they like the same kind of movies that I do. And so I want to go talk with them and spend time with them. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. But it becomes a bad thing if we do that to the exclusion of spending time with other people and making other kinds of connections that we could have. The reality is this, that we are all connected with each other based on something that is entirely not external in us, on us, with us. We are connected truly and deeply because we are all connected to Jesus. That's what binds us together. No matter what other differences we might have, we're connected to Jesus, we are connected to each other forever. Our relationships are eternal. We are connected to Jesus, and we are connected to each other thereby. And so we need to put value in that reality. That's what should unite us together. That's one of the reasons that should guide us and drive us for how we spend time together. We should want to spend time together to talk about Jesus, to talk about what He's done for us, how He's involved in our lives. That really levels the playing field, and it doesn't allow for this kind of favoritism. There's nothing inherently wrong, again, with spending time with people who like the same things you do. It's quite natural. But the challenge is for us to be intentional about also spending time with people who don't have anything in common with us. Going back to last week's message, if we are welcoming the Word, we will welcome other people, and we will welcome rich and poor alike, and not treat either one with favoritism. So here's the judgment that James lays down in verse 4. He says, "...have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? If you treat people this way..." Haven't you made distinctions? This word is the same word that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 6, when James was telling us that if we're going to ask God for wisdom, we have to ask without doubting. And the word there means to be divided internally. This is the same word. Don't ask God for wisdom while you're really wanting something else. You've got divided motives. And so here he's saying that if you treat one person this way and another person this other way, you are divided within yourself. You're showing that you might be 
one of those double-minded people, those two-souled people that James has such hard things to say about in this letter. You are divided in yourselves, is the way that I would put it there in verse 4. Haven't you become divided in your mind, in your heart? If you treat one person one way because of what they're wearing, and you treat somebody else differently because they're wearing something different, you are showing, proving that you are divided inside. And the second thing he says is you've become a judge. You set yourself up as a judge with evil thoughts. That can't be good. You've set yourself up as a judge, and the basis of your judgment is evil thoughts. And Jesus told us that evil thoughts come from our heart. They come from inside us. And that's very akin to what James said in chapter 1 about temptation arising from within us. And so it is here that when we treat people differently because of whatever external thing, we are judging them by the way that we treat them. We're showing that we have determined that they are worth our time or not based on external realities. And that comes from evil thoughts within us. Verses 5 through 7 then show us the folly of favoritism. And he comes at it from two different angles. The theological folly and the practical folly of showing favoritism this way. Verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers... Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So he begins by giving what I would call a picture of theological folly of treating people this way, the theological folly of treating people this way. And he's focusing on, notice, the way that we treat the poor person specifically. That's really where his main emphasis in this passage lies, that we've dishonored the poor person if this should unfold in our midst. And he says, it doesn't make sense theologically because God chose poor people. If God chose poor people then how could you mistreat poor people? And we get bogged down in this verse because it says God has chosen the poor. And we start thinking, well, did God only choose the poor? And how do we understand that? Because we know that even in the Bible there were followers of Jesus who were very wealthy. And we might spiritualize and say, well, they are poor in spirit. But folks, think about it. Did God choose them because they were poor in spirit? No. God chose them, and they became poor in spirit. That beatitude Jesus presents at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the reason that you're poor in spirit is because you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, an heir of the kingdom, as James says here. He says, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world? So God chose poor people, so how could you mistreat poor people? And he could have he made the same point about rich people. He could have. God chose rich people. So how can you either how can you elevate them to some high status? You see, he could have made that point, but that's not his main point. That's not his main interest here. His main interest is that we could be mistreating poor people, mistreating those that are low in their status or in their supply or in their income even. He says that he's chosen those who are poor to be rich, to be rich in faith 
wealthy in faith. He's chosen poor people to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom. Election in Scripture is always election for some specific purpose, for some specific role, or for some specific status. Here, election is for certain people to be faith-rich and kingdom heirs. Whether worldly poor or worldly wealthy, kingdom heirs calculate their wealth in terms of their faith, not in terms of their possessions. Now, notice who gets to be heirs of the kingdom. The kingdom is promised to those who love Him, those who love God. Notice the precise parallel to what James said in chapter 1, verse 12. The promise to those who endure trials was that they will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. So, God's chosen poor people so that they will love Him. He chose them so that they become kingdom heirs who love God and will receive the crown of life in the future. And so, how can we dare dishonor poor people? If God has chosen them, why would we mistreat them or abuse them? And then he turns to what I call practical folly. And he turns his attention to the rich folks. Elevating the rich in your midst doesn't make sense either because in James's context in particular, it was oftentimes the rich people who mistreated the Christians. And I suspect many of James's audience were actually poor, being spread abroad as they were. They were spread all over the place. They were probably poorer in the community and rich people exploited them and took advantage of them. And so he's saying, it doesn't make any sense for you to fawn over the rich people that come into your gatherings. Why would that make any sense? They're the people who treat you so badly. And so he says that it's practically foolish for you to do that. Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? So many times rich people would take advantage of poor people by getting into a relationship with them that involved debt. So they loan money to a poor person, and then when the poor person can't pay, well, they're going to haul them off to court. And the result might even be, and very often was, that they would be enslaved to the rich person. So it doesn't make any sense to fawn over and to elevate these rich people. And it's true in our world as well. Wealthy people often look down on Christians just because of what we believe. And so it doesn't make any sense for us to elevate them or treat them in some special fashion differently than we would choose to treat other people. But then in verse 7, he takes it up a notch and he says, not only do they treat you badly, but they blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. And I'm sure he's talking about the name of Jesus here. Rich people don't speak well of Jesus. They don't in our day, and they didn't in his day, typically. And he's saying, if they don't speak well of Jesus, then why are you elevating them? Why are you treating them with special favoritism? Don't do that. It doesn't make any sense. Well, he's not done yet with the issue of favoritism, and now he wants to highlight the sinfulness of favoritism. It's already been shown to be foolish and not fitting for God's people, and now he's going to show that it is just plain sinful. Verses 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So he turns his attention to the royal law. He says, this is what you should be doing. When people come into your midst, when visitors come, and just in general throughout your life, you should be fulfilling, completing, bringing to expression in your midst the royal law. Now, he's already mentioned the law back in chapter 1 a couple of times. This is the only time he calls it the royal law. He called it the perfect law, the law of liberty, back in chapter 1, verse 25. And he's going to talk about it again. We talked a little bit last week about that law. This law that he's talking about, I think, is actually an aspect of the gospel. He's talking about the obligations of the gospel. He's saying, you're a Christian. You've been saved by the gospel. Therefore, this is the way that you should live. There's a law that comes in with the gospel, and it's a royal law. That is to say, it is the law of the king, King Jesus. He referred to him as the Messiah, the royal anointed one in verse 1. But how do we think about this, this royal law? What is it? Douglas Moo, one of my professors at Wheaton, defines it this way. The sum total of demands that God, through Jesus, imposes on believers. The whole law as interpreted and handed over to the church in the teaching of Jesus. Thus, the royal law may well extend beyond the Mosaic law as fulfilled and reinterpreted by Jesus to include the teaching of Jesus. So, the law that James is speaking of here is all of the obligations that God makes on His people in the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, filtered through Jesus, filtered through the gospel. So, you read Exodus, you read the Ten Commandments, and you say, how am I supposed to respond to the Ten Commandments as a Christian? Well, you've got to take those Ten Commandments and see how they are connected to Jesus. How did Jesus fulfill those commands? And now then, that I am in Christ, how do I live them out? Now, the Ten Commandments are quite straightforward because it seems like we just ought to do them for the most part. But even still, even you shall not murder needs to be taken through Jesus to see how we fulfill that. Well, obviously we don't murder, that's one way, but if you remember the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, He quoted the commandment not to murder, and He built on it. He developed it. He deepened it. He deepened its obligation on us. Now, He was actually showing what was already there all along, but if we don't take that into account, even though we might not murder someone, that doesn't mean that we haven't broken the commandment, you shall not murder. And James is going to speak to that issue right here. So how do you do it? How do you live it out? Well, you do it, he says, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes one commandment, Leviticus 19.18. He quotes one commandment and he says, all of your fulfilling of the law as Christians is hung on that single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now he's drawing from Jesus, right? Remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? 
It's interesting that Jesus didn't quote any of the Big Ten. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18, and he put them together. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Only James in all of the New Testament picks up on this dual greatest commandment and makes that connection again for us. Did you see it? Right here in verse 5, we talked about it briefly. He talked about being heirs of the kingdom which God has promised to those who love Him, to those who love God. If you're an heir of the kingdom, you love God. And now, here, you love your neighbor as yourself. And so James is doing what Jesus did, bringing these two commandments together and saying, that is the sum of the Christian life, essentially. How are you going to avoid favoritism? Love God, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Commentator Alec Mateer says this, The essence of the royal law is that wherever there is need... There is an obligation to extend the sort of love we lavish on ourselves. The essence of partiality is to select the recipients of our care on some ground other than that they are in need. You see, what James's Christian churches should have concluded when these two visitors came in is that the poor person has needs. The poor person has needs. And we have an obligation to seek to meet those needs with whatever resources God has supplied. Now beyond that, the poor person needs Jesus. He needs the gospel. He needs me and us to come care for him by providing him with Jesus, but also providing for his material needs as well. But they also should have concluded that the rich person has needs. He may not need material needs care, but he needs Jesus. He needs the gospel. He needs for me to come and care for him. And that's the only basis that we should be judging how we care for one another. Where is the need? When people come in, we should view them as people who have needs. And bottom line, fundamentally, we all need Jesus. Whether you've been a believer for 60 years or you're not a believer at all, you need Jesus. We all need Jesus now and forever. And our obligation, our responsibility, is to show them Jesus, to give them Jesus, to point to Jesus for these folks and for each other. So that's the happy side of fulfilling the law. That's what it's supposed to look like in a positive sense. And then James points back to God himself, and he kind of elevates this issue. I hope you see it like this. He says, don't show favoritism. And then he starts talking about don't commit adultery and don't murder. He's elevating the command not to show favoritism up to the importance of the Big Ten. And he's showing that ultimately it doesn't matter where it is in the law. It doesn't matter whether it's in Exodus chapter 34 or whether it's in Leviticus 19 or whether it's in Deuteronomy 6 or whether it's in Exodus 20 where the Ten Commandments are. It doesn't matter because God is the one who gave all of the commands. Now, he mentions two of the big ten, just to make sure he's got our attention, I suspect. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So it's the same lawgiver. It's the authority behind the law that's at issue here. So if you don't commit adultery, good job for you. But if you murder, guess what? 
you've become a transgressor of the law. And anybody who keeps the whole law, even if you kept the whole law, and the rich young ruler comes to mind here, even if you kept the whole law but failed in one point, again, not even talking necessarily about the Big Ten, but any of them has become accountable or guilty of breaking all of it. Now, there's some confusion here. When we read this passage, we start thinking, well, that means that all sin is equal in the eyes of God. But that's not quite what it says. It says that God is the one behind them all. And so if you break a little command, and Jesus talked that way, he spoke of weightier matters of the law and lighter matters of the law. But guess what? If you break one of the lighter matters of the law, you've broken the whole law. You're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So it's not to say that some sin is not worse than others. It is. But even the tiniest sin gets you in the guilty chair before God. That's the issue, really. How do you think about the God who gave the commands? So if you break one of them, you're accountable for all of it because they're all interconnected by the one God who spoke them all. So if we show favoritism, James says we are sinning and we are lawbreakers just as much as if we'd broken the commandment not to murder someone. So he turns his attention finally in verses 12 and 13 to the merciless judgment of favoritism. A merciless judgment. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And there's some hard things in the last couple of verses that end this section. First of all, in verse 12, he's drawing a conclusion. He says, In light of everything that I've just told you, thus you must speak and thus you must act. And by speaking and acting, he means essentially everything that you do. He's putting a summary for all of human activity, all of human behavior in speaking and acting. How should you speak and act? Well, you should speak and act in such a way that you are aware that you are about to be judged under the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Now, again, I think that he's referring to the gospel here and its obligations in particular, but he says that this gospel law, this gospel law is going to stand in judgment over us if we act this way. And so he's saying we should live in light of that judgment. We should live with an awareness that we will be judged by God. If you're a Christian, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10. There is a judgment that is to come. And it has to do with the law. James says it's a judgment that has to do with what we do and what we say. James is teaching us the same thing that Jesus taught us. This is hard to hold together, but we really have to. It's a tension that we must hold together. Let me show you again some of the things Jesus said. He spoke about this judgment being in some way in accordance with our deeds, with our behavior, with our works, and our words. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, 
People will give account for every careless word they speak. And then he says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And he's saying that on Judgment Day, our words, the things that we spoke during our life, will be on the table, so to speak. We will be justified by our words, he says. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering at this point, how does that fit with the understanding that I am justified by faith alone? And that's true, right? And James understands that just as well as Jesus, just as well as Paul, I think. So how does it work that on the last day you will be justified by your words? I think we have to see that your words become evidence that is brought into the courtroom. Think about the courtroom scene for a minute. You've been counted righteous by faith already. If you're a believer in Jesus right now, in this moment, the verdict of righteous has been declared over your life. God has declared that verdict unappealably, unchangeably. Permanent verdict over your life is righteous. Will not be a changed, will not be appealed. In no way whatsoever can it be overturned, period. That's a done deal. But on the last day, you will actually have your day in court. You will enter the courtroom. Right now, you have not entered the courtroom. Your day in court has not come up. And yet, the verdict's already been pronounced. The trial seems to be over. God's pronounced the verdict from His courtroom... But you haven't been there. You haven't stood before Him. But you must. You must. All human beings must stand before the judgment of God. And we will, as believers. The verdict has already been pronounced for us, but we must experience the actual court date. And when we do, the evidence will be brought forth that supports the verdict. There must be evidence that supports the verdict. And the evidence that both James and Jesus and Paul Point two is the evidence of our deeds and our words. So that on the last day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's not just a time of rewards. It is that, I think, but it's more. It's not just that. It's a time for justifying our justification, if you will, for showing the evidence that you were, in fact, are, in fact, counted righteous. And that evidence is the words that you actually spoke as a Christian. The words, if we could put it this way theologically, the words that were equipped by the Holy Spirit. The words that God helped us to speak that were pleasing to Him and in obedience to Him. That's going to come out in the courtroom. It's going to become on public record for all eternity. Because during this life, we don't see that record. Our life is a mixed bag of all kinds of crazy. Some good stuff, some bad stuff, and maybe some neutral stuff. I don't know. But definitely good stuff and definitely bad stuff. And on the last day, the good stuff will be on display because it shows how God has been at work in our life. We don't see all the good stuff that God does in and through us during our lifetime, but we will. We will. And everybody will. It will become a part of public record 
Douglas Moo again says this, The believer in himself will always deserve God's judgment. Conformity to the royal law is never perfect, as it must be. But our merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. And it is on the basis of this union with the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us that we can have confidence of vindication at the judgment. See, as you live your life, you shouldn't be wondering, am I going to be okay on judgment day? But if you are wondering that, if you are wondering, am I going to be okay on judgment day, you might start looking at your life and seeing that, I don't know. When I look at my life, it doesn't add up, certainly not to a perfect record. So on that basis, there's a question mark. And I hope you're honest enough to look at your own life and say that, that it just doesn't seem to add up. You're not going to be okay if it's only on that basis. Instead, when we think that way and we have that question in our minds, we have to turn our attention to Jesus and how He has fulfilled the law for us. You see, He loved God and His neighbor perfectly all the time. We are called to follow in His steps in that, but we will always stumble along throughout this life. We will always falter in our love for God and our love for our neighbor. We cannot do it perfectly. We do not do it perfectly, either in our attitude, in our heart, or in our actual actions and words. I hope you know that about yourself. But that doesn't nullify God's judgment. The verdict is in for us. And it's in not based on what we've done. And it's in based on what Jesus has done in our place. And so we can have no fear of judgment. Alec Matier adds one more point to this. It's not that our mercy has purchasing power, but, it, but that it has evidential value. So our mercy, our good deeds, our obedience, our good words, they don't buy anything from God. They don't earn anything from God, but they prove something. They show something. They demonstrate something about what God has done in us. Matir goes on, Neither Jesus nor James would see our merciful deeds as meritorious acts by which we make ourselves worthy of God's mercy. If we could make ourselves worthy, we would not need mercy. That final line in verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Some people look at it and say, well, that means that God's mercy is going to triumph over God's judgment. I don't think so. If we elevate one attribute of God over another, we've misunderstood God, I think. I think here he is talking about our mercy, our mercy. That's what's under discussion in this whole section. How do we treat the poor person who comes into our midst? And the call is that we would treat them with mercy and not treat them differently because of the way they're dressed or because of their poverty. But instead, we would pour out mercy toward them. If we don't, God will judge us without mercy on the last day. That's the warning here. A life that's characterized by a favoritism toward people and a lack of mercy toward those in need is a life that's demonstrating that it doesn't know Jesus and that you are in danger of a merciless judgment on the last day. 
but mercy triumphs over judgment in the end. The evidence of mercy toward other people will come out and have victory over condemnation there. And that victory is rooted in what Jesus has done to be sure. But nevertheless, that's the way it seems to work on the last day. The evidence must come in. There must be evidence there that lines up with God's verdict for Him to be righteous. And so He ensures that it is there by His ongoing work in our lives. This is not about me earning anything before God in any way whatsoever. So as we come to the end, I'd like to revisit the question we opened with and talked about. What about God? We talked about how He doesn't show favoritism based on external things, but does God show favoritism based on what He sees in the heart? Does God show favoritism particularly in choosing some but not others for salvation? And I raised that question because James raised that question for us in the middle of the passage where he claimed that God chose poor people. So God chose poor people. He chose some, but He didn't choose others. Does that mean that God is being partial or showing favoritism? Well, first of all, let me say that favoritism would imply that He bases His choice on something in us. And so if God is being partial or showing favoritism, it means that He chose us because of something in us, whether we're pretty or wealthy or we're connected to the right people, or because, as some folks would say, that He looked out through the corridor of time and saw that I would respond appropriately when presented with the gospel, that I would believe in Jesus. And so because He saw that and said, oh, He's going to respond favorably when I offer Him the good news... And then because of that, God says, so I'll take that guy and not the other guy who won't. That would be a kind of favoritism. And so the question is, does God do that? And I'd like to reconsider David to address that question briefly. If you remember, King Saul was rejected because of his constant disobedience to God and his role as king of Israel. The people had wanted Saul... They looked at him and said, he's tall, he's big, he's attractive, he's handsome, let's choose that guy as our king. We want that guy to be our king. So they were basing their choice based on external criteria, it seems. And when God tells Samuel, the prophet, to go and tell Saul, you're done, God told Samuel to say this in 1 Samuel 13, 14, this very famous line, Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart. And that is commonly understood to mean that God was looking for a man who had a heart that was like God's heart. If that's true, God was showing favoritism to David based on his heart. If that's true, then God was looking for a man who had something inside of him that God wanted, that was good. I'd like to suggest to you that that's not what the phrase means. I know we've got a whole line of books and Bible studies entitled Becoming a Man After God's Own Heart, Becoming a Woman After God's Own Heart, Becoming a Young Man After God's Own Heart, Becoming a Young Woman After God's Own Heart, Becoming a Child After God's Own Heart, maybe even Becoming a Pet After God's Own Heart. I don't know. Probably not. But I'd like to suggest to you that the biblical phrase just doesn't mean what these authors think it means. God tells us exactly what He means a little bit later in 1 Samuel 16. 
When Samuel arrives at Jesse's house, God gives Samuel the instructions for what to do. And he tells him in 1 Samuel 16, 1, I have provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons. That's all that that fancy phrase means. I have provided for myself. You see, a man after God's own heart simply means a man after God's own choosing. It doesn't tell us why he chose him. It just simply says, I want to choose him. I'm going to choose him. That's what a man after God's own heart means. You can't become one of those. Sorry. You can't become a man or a woman after God's own heart. If that's your life goal, I've just crushed it. I'm terribly sorry. But that's actually really good news because the truth of the matter is if you're a follower of Jesus, you are one. You are a man after God's own heart. You are a woman after God's own heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, that means God chose you before the foundation of the world, and you, therefore, are a man or a woman or a child after God's own heart. A commentator on 1 Samuel summarizes the point like this. A man after God's own heart has been taken in popular Christian jargon to mean a particularly godly man, a man with a heart like God's. Then he goes on to say, I do not believe that the words can mean that. And I personally fully agree with him. He goes on, A man after God's own heart means a man of God's own choosing, a man God has set his heart on. A man after God's own heart, if I can put it like this, is talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in the man's heart. So God chose David. Why did he choose David? No idea. Based on his own criteria, I suppose, and that's the same way he chose us. He chose us based on his own mind, not on anything in us, internal or external. So to wrap up, God doesn't show favoritism based on external or internal considerations. He doesn't look at our hearts and treat us a certain way because our heart is a certain way. And He doesn't treat us a certain way because we're so pretty or so wealthy or whatever external. God chose simply because He chose. Maybe He had a criteria in His own mind, but it had nothing to do with us. It had nothing to do with what's in me. And that's really good news. You know what that means? That means that anybody can be saved. That means that nothing inside or outside of a person rules any person out of having been chosen by God. The possibility of anybody on the planet having been chosen by God is never to be ruled out by us. We should always... Always, always approach other people who don't believe in Jesus with hope. We should never, never, never rule anybody out of the kingdom because they're too bad, they're too wicked, they're too uninterested. Don't rule them out. There's no reason for that. Once upon a time, you were probably just like that. Ultimately, God chose in Christ, though, What's his criteria? 
I still don't know. He doesn't tell us, and we don't need to know. He chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So what was His criteria? No idea. But in relationship to Christ, His Messiah, His Son, the Father and Son talking together decided to choose us. Why? No idea. I don't need to know. I'm glad I don't know, in fact. But it was something in them that decided. It was out of their love and their mercy for sinful, broken people in this world. God looked at His Son, who would die to pay for human sin and guilt, who would die to pay for the sins of favoritism and murder and adultery and all the rest. And He chose us to be holy. He chose us to be blameless before Him. And it's only because of His grace that we are moving toward holiness and blamelessness. That's the destiny that is assured to us. We will be holy. We will be blameless. Why? He chose us to be that way. And He's at work to ensure that we're going to get there in the end. And so the call then for us now is to not show favoritism, to treat people equally with love and care based only on what their needs are out of love for God and love for neighbor and in imitation of God. Would you pray with me?